keep your copy of scriptures there open to 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> we'll be reading the remainder of the chapter this morning. Be the subject of the, the text for the sermon. Uh, but before we hear from the Lord and <clears throat> his word, let's go to him in prayer and ask his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you. We bask in the knowledge and knowing the privilege of your presence as we worship you together now as your people. We thank you that you are holy and powerful and just, and that you purge out from us all that is unholy and unclean. And we thank you and we praise you that you are gracious and that you are able to deal with us in our sin and in our dirtiness. We thank you that you're merciful and able to lift us up in our weakness and in our frailty and that you're strong and good and true and gracious. And we pray, dear Lord, as we turn to you again and again turn to your word and as we listen to every word that comes forth from your mouth, that you would place that word in our hearts and minds and wills, that we begin to love you in new ways and understand you in ways better and that we may submit our wills gladly to your perfect wisdom and your sovereign will, that all of our life we may learn how to glorify you and enjoy you forevermore. And so we come, dear Lord, again, and we ask, speak to us, for your servants are listening. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And 1 Corinthians 14, reading, starting at verse 26 to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, starting at verse 26. This is the word of God. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, uh, if if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. All, uh, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire the prophecy to prophesy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So far the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but this word of the Lord endures forever. One of the wonderful things about going to seminary uh, that many people don't realize or take into consideration 
um, is that it's not merely academic training, uh, not merely a scholar's task, but it's the informal training and the experience that you receive in church life throughout that exercise. Uh, some of my favorite memories of seminary are experiences that I had, stories that I had gleaned um, from older pastors and from well-seasoned saints. I remember a story of a pastor, a professor, who had a reputation of being somewhat uh, rather stiff and formal. And while this pastor and professor uh, was on vacation, um, as was the habit of many pastors, he kept a set of sermon notes tucked into his Bible every time he went to church. Um, and he kept a set of notes there in case of emergency. right? And so even though relaxing and dressed a bit more informal, a bit casually, he still had on a tie, but with a blue shirt and a jacket. But he was ready just in case. right? Be ready in season and out. And so it happened that this pastor was on... Uh, the pastor that he was of the church that he was visiting while he was on vacation um, had an accident on the way to church. He couldn't get to church. And so the elders of the church uh, inquired of the professor if he could fill in, if he could fill the pulpit and preach. And the professor agreed, but he was terribly distressed. And he was distressed because he thought, though he had a sermon ready, he said, I really wish I had been wearing a white shirt. Uh, and that seems to be just a little silly to us, right? But in this man's mind, a particular style of clothes had to be worn to meet the need of the occasion. And a blue shirt wouldn't do. For him, the preacher wore a white shirt, a tie, and a jacket. And again, this is perhaps an example of the stereotype of the uptight Presbyterian uh, taking to the extreme that admonition, let all things be done decently in order. And this goes along with the similar critique against the Puritans, Right? It says Puritan, Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. Right? That was a critique. And these are, of course, hyperbolic, extreme examples or portrayals of what Presbyterianism, what Puritanism is. But our text this morning builds on the principle that whatever is done in the body of Christ must be done for the edification of the body, for the spiritual bodybuilding, we called it last week. The second half of chapter 14 continues that theme, and it emphasizes that order is necessary for edification to take place. Order is necessary. It's a prerequisite. Paul had been making his case in answering this question that the Corinthians had asked him. It was an issue that had divided the church, and it sadly sown confusion in the body of Christ. And this broke the heart of the apostle as he attempted to respond to them. And even more so, it breaks the heart of the Lord the things that were going on there. This morning we'll complete this long section in 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 to 14. And here Paul had, had, uh, uh, had been addressing that issue asked by the Corinthians in another letter about the place and the practice of tongues speaking. The place and practice of tongues. And the manner in which the Corinthians exercised this gift uh, was sowing confusion and chaos, dividing the church. This is something that's ran through from chapter 1 all the way until now. And they had turned the Lord's Day worship service into chaos and confusion. Right? They should have earnestly desired the gifts of the Spirit, Paul told them. The right use of the gifts leads to the common good of the church, the building up of the church. And this must be grounded in what? In love. Right? That most excellent, permanent way, the way of heaven itself. 
And so Paul goes on to say more about tongues and prophecy. A few things to remember as we look through the rest of this, the end of this chapter, chapter 14, is that tongues was indeed a true gift of the Spirit, speaking in tongues. But Paul says, and he's been emphasizing, tongue was inferior to prophecy. Why is that the case? Well, as we saw, tongues is inferior because tongues can't be understood by the church unless there's an interpreter. It is revelation indeed, but not if there's an interpreter. If there's no interpreter there, no one can understand it. And so the second complementary gift of interpretation must attend the gift of tongue if it will be at all beneficial to the church. But those who prophesy, right, those who prophesy, which again is spirit-enabled speech, they speak in a manner that the church comprehends. They understand what is being said. They understand it as revelation from God. And understanding it, they are built up. They are edified. And that's the goal, again, right? We've, uh, this is the, the refrain uh, through these last couple chapters. The purpose of these gifts, the goal is the common good of the body of Christ uh, and to glorify God. And Paul goes on to tell them and discuss the effects of uninterpreted tongues on unbelievers who may be coming by or visiting the church. When that happens, it's uh, not only that believers are not built up, but it causes confusion amongst unbelievers. Non-believers will be put off by everyone speaking at the same time and everyone speaking in languages that no one can understand. It would have been unhelpful, positively unhelpful for the church and chaos to the, the visiting non-believer. And again, they would have seen this confusion and chaos and the disorder in worship, and that might cause them to think that Christians are out of their minds. Maybe they would even think that Christians were acting just like pagans. And so the apostle says in verse 20, Brothers, not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And notice again how Paul is tender with them. right? Paul, this imposing figure, we shouldn't think of him as being harsh or overly stern. Paul certainly was uh, thundering and strong when it came to opposition to the enemies and ideas that are contrary to the gospel. He indeed was strong. The Galatians, to the Galatians, for instance, is one place where we see Paul very strong, making his point against the false gospel. But notice here that Paul is careful not to go too long in this letter of the Corinthians without reminding them of who they are. Right? He's done this before and he'll do it again. He reminds them of who they are by calling them brothers. Right? They're brothers. And that in and of itself is a good reminder for us, brothers and sisters. Right? We will certainly have problems amongst each other. We are fallen people in a fallen world interacting with other fallen people. So sinners doing life together with other sinners. And that being the case, we should expect all sorts of conflict. And in that conflict, we need to remember who we are. You remember who we are and who those with which we are having conflict are. And to whom we belong. And we should act accordingly. It's a reality that sometimes others won't respond to your attempts to reconcile in your seeking of forgiveness. But other times, and we pray most of the time, peace can be restored. Peace can be restored. And when it is, it is a beautiful thing. And what else happens when peace is restored and brothers are reconciled? Christ is honored. Right? Christ is honored and he's glorified. But notice the example given in Scripture 
The Corinthians had some very real, very bad problems. And the Holy Spirit has Paul write two letters addressing them. But notice Paul's affection to these people. His affection uh, by calling them brothers. Brothers. Then he gives them an imperative and a command. Stop thinking like children. Don't be children in your thinking. Stop acting like children. Rather be childlike regarding evil. But grow up. Be mature. Become mature in your thinking. And why is that? So they could evaluate things rightly. The things that they were doing. And they could correct the heinous activities that they were engaged in. This disruptive, disorderly behavior. Placing an unnecessary barrier to people coming to faith in Christ. The gospel is its own offense, right? The gospel is its own offense. We don't need to add our offense to it, right? Let the gospel be what offends people. We read in in verse 21, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This, of course, is describing a time when Israel, uh, when they didn't listen to God's messenger. They didn't listen to Isaiah as he came with the message. They didn't listen to him. Though he's speaking in a language they can understand. And therefore Israel comes under judgment by men of strange speech. Right? The Assyrians invaded from the north, speaking a language foreign to Israel. God's people refused to, refused to listen to him, working through Isaiah, speaking Hebrew. And as a result, they were oppressed by people of unintelligible speech, strange tongue to them. And Paul mentions this to the Corinthians to emphasize that uninterpreted tongues results in people not understanding God's word for them. Just like when Israel, and they couldn't understand the Assyrians. And this is ultimately the kind of judgment that comes upon them. It comes as a result of not doing things properly, decently, and in order. And for this reason, Paul goes on in verse 22 and says, So tongues are assigned not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers, but for believers. Right? We need to pay attention to what he's saying here to understand what it is that he's saying. True prophecy could be understood, right? It was revelation of God. It was understandable. And it was an enormous benefit to those who trusted it was from God. On the other hand, that unknown, unintelligible speech of Israel's invaders resulted from the fact that what? That God's people didn't trust God. They didn't listen to God. They didn't heed his warning. They didn't trust his promises. And so they came under judgment that took the form of what? Unintelligible speech. So it's a sign of judgment. And just like Israel of old, when the Corinthians prophesied that they spoke in tongues with an interpreter, the whole church is edified. The whole church is edified. But when a tongue is not translated and therefore not understood, what follows from that? Confusion. Confusion. <clears throat> Nobody could benefit by the revelation from God because they couldn't understand what was being said. And so Paul goes, he moves from this illustration of the past to their immediate situation. He says, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? If there are people who don't understand what is being said and all they see is chaos and confusion, they will conclude that these people are out of their minds. 
and still worse yet, they will think that the church is just like the culture's religions and pagan worship, right? One of the things that characterized pagan worship was wild behavior and ecstatic utterances. I don't know how prevalent chaos and wild behavior is in in some churches today, but I do know there was a time in the past where certain groups were doing very wild and very chaotic and inappropriate things under the guise of Christian worship. There were phenomena like being slain in the spirit. Have you heard of this? Um, Which is interesting because the only slaying in the spirit you see in scripture is Ananias and Sapphira when they're put to death by the Lord. See, things like that are being drunk in the spirits, acting acting drunk during services. You've probably heard of the term holy roller. At least in some groups, they were literally falling and rolling in the aisles. And some of these groups even mandated the speaking in what they believed were tongues. I believe they still do today. But there was no true interpretation. There were no interpreters because they weren't speaking in real languages. And that gift, the speaking in tongues, belonged to the accomplishment stage of the church, the foundation laying stage of the church. And it is no more reproducible than is the resurrection. And like Paul warned the Corinthians, so it is true in our day. What is the outside world looking in? What do they see? What do they conclude about people who call themselves Christians and act in this behavior? They look and they see all this wild, chaotic behavior. Paul says, they enter, what will they see? Will they not say that you are out of your minds? This is not edifying for the church. It's not building up of the body of Christ. And he gives a terrible example about Jesus and those who call themselves Christians. But prophecy has a way different impact. What does he say in verse 24? He said, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What a contrast. That is glorious, brothers and sisters. Think about what he's saying in that one verse. See the beauty of God's revelation at work via the Holy Spirit on the hearts of those whom that revelation falls. It's beautiful. And doesn't that, by the way, warm your hearts, brothers and sisters? Doesn't that warm your hearts in contemplation of the time God's revelation, his word, preached or read, fell effectively upon your heart? It's beautiful indeed. And as a result, you were what? You were plucked from the fire. Plucked from the fire and placed eternally safe in the body of Christ. That's why prophecy and preaching is superior because of the effect that it has on unbelievers and the Holy Spirit working through that word. That's his promise. That's what he works through. And some Corinthians had it all completely backwards. When done in God's way, the truth is properly proclaimed. The law goes out to convict people of their sins. And the gospel goes out. And those unbelievers who've come in become aware of their sins before God. And they become aware that they are under God's judgment. And what do they do? They don't see chaos and confusion and strange times. 
they hear the proclamation of the truth in a way that they can understand and in a way that the Spirit works through and they are convicted that they are sinners in need of a great Savior. And as God gives them faith, they respond. They respond. How will they believe him whom they've never heard? Right, Romans 10 tells us. They must hear Jesus and the Spirit works faith in their heart, in the hearts of the elect. And that most glorious, most spectacular event of all takes place. The dead come to life. The dead come to life. Isn't that awesome? It's awesome indeed. And he still brings the dead to life. You know this. I know this because he brought me to life. From spiritual deadness to life in Christ. And then verses 22 to 33, we have a peek into the manner of worship that the Corinthians practice. A little glimpse into what went on in the church. To be sure, this is not a detailed list of all that went on. But in fact, uh, there are more detailed services resulted from Paul's instruction here. And he tells them how those gifts of the Spirit are to be used in the church of Corinth. And he says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation... And then he gives that all-inclusive uh, qualifier. Let all things be done for the building up of the church, for building up, for bodybuilding. Let all things be done, he says. For what? Let all things be done for status? No, that's not what he says. Let all things be done for elevating some over, over others? No. Let all things be done at the same time so that no one knows what's going on? No, that's not what he says. He says that all things be done for bodybuilding, for the edification of the church, for the building up of the church. And we get, get details of that in verses 27 to 28. And he says, if, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. There it is. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. These instructions, they're kind of self-evident, right? And they're for the order to be, uh, uh, for order to be most effective. Everyone cannot be talking at the same time. Have an interpreter. Don't talk over one another. If there's no interpreter, you keep silent. And Paul moves on to the topic of prophecy. In verses 29 to 31, and he says, in essence, listen, consider, weigh these things, Wait. It seems to go against the description that we have in our minds of what the Corinthians were doing. And again, the point is order and care for revelation to, be, to benefit the body at all. And in verse 31, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Care and control is to be used with the gifts of the Spirit. Even those that, 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 that continue on today. And this would militate against wild outbursts that seem to be a part of their worship services. And it also militates against that sort of thing today as well. And then there's this statement, this glorious statement in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. God is not a God of confusion and chaos. He is a God of peace. Don't act like pagans, Paul tells them. It's not who you are. And when you come together, it's not a free-for-all. God desires peace 
and order. So his people will be, what? Instructed, lifted up, edified, strengthened, encouraged. So things are to be done decently and in order. And the same God who brought order out of chaos at creation brings order out of the chaos of bad practices in his church. Here's the, here's the medicine for that. And then in verse 33 and 35, Paul gives this principle for the Corinthians that all the churches are to follow. So women are not to speak in church during worship. We should remember that in that culture, women were not allowed to speak in public at all. Or if they, they did, it was only to other women. And at the time, women in Greek culture, Greek culture were pushing back against social norms. They were becoming increasingly immodest and progressive for the time. They are challenging the standards of decency and respect. And we saw something of this in chapter 11 when we, we read, read about uh, Paul's instructions regarding head coverings and the, covering, uh, the connection he's making there regarding women as a sign of commitment and submission and the throwing off of those beliefs and inviting confusion into worship and into those relationships and into that witness to the world. And there's something similar going on here as, as uh, provoked and pushed on by, by pagan religion, mystery religion, pagan practices. Part of Paul's point here is to avoid identifying with these pagan trends. You should not look like pagans in their worship. That's not who you are anymore. Christian women are exhorted to keep silent in church. And, and this is probably a reference to prophecy and tongue speaking. And like in chapter 11, it's a sign of submission to their husbands and fathers. And it's a display of public immodesty, uh, public modesty um, as they keep these things. Um, and then in verse 34, you see, it, you see it, uh, the reference to the law. Uh, verse 34, as the law also says, right? Most believe that this is a reference to the fact that the husband is supposed to be exercising headship of his family, including his wife. He is the covenant head. He is the federal head of that relationship, of that family. And he's supposed to exercise that, particularly regarding theological things and, and, and matters related to the church. And he goes all the way back to Genesis 3.16, right? This, 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 uh, this theme. After the fall, the Lord says, the woman, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Right, so things are turned upside down after the fall. Paul tells the women, if they have a question, to ask their husbands at home. Because doing so in public was considered disrespectful. And it's important that we understand what Paul is doing and what he is not doing. Paul is not taking up the question of what, uh, exhaustively, what is not allowable for women to do in church. Right? Remember, the, the very, uh, he is very concerned with the worship not look like paganism. And he is addressing the importance of modesty, proper behavior. When Paul is saying that women is to be silent in worship and that they should be submissive to their husbands, right? We've seen this in other places. Ephesians 5, for instance. Paul's not advocating uh, the, the slavish submission of women at all. He's not saying that women should never speak in public or that they uh, do not speak in worship. The chapter closes with Paul calling them out for being prideful. Right? As we move to verse 36, 
What's he saying here? Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that has reached? Right? He's chiding them. God's word didn't derive from Corinth. And Corinth wasn't the only church. And it's interesting here, um, and worthy to study and flesh out more. We don't have time this morning, but here and in verse 33, um, it's interesting. It says that the, the Corinthians are to consider their practices and make sure that they are the same as the other Christian churches. It's very interesting. They're to be the same. There's a, a commonality of what they should be doing. And this says something about uh, what's called orthopraxy, right? The right, right practice of how we worship. And that says that it matters how we act in worship. It matters what we do. It's not a free-for-all. And this speaks against the anything-goes kind of spirit uh, uh, that are in some branches of the, the Christian family tree. It speaks against the ethic of Dis- every Disney movie ever made that says a person must what? Follow his heart. It speaks against that. Many people have adopted this kind of worldview when it comes to worship. Others have adopted a radical skepticism that says, well, we can't know everything, therefore we can't know anything for sure. Brothers and sisters, that is not a Christian way of thinking. That is not a Christian worldview. We don't have time to unfold all this, as I said. But it is interesting that here in another place in the New Testament, we are taught that we are to adhere to the truth and that there is to be uniformity in, in the churches of Christ in doctrine, in truth, and in worship. Paul is calling out the Corinthians for their pride. And he once again reminds them of his authority. Right? He is sent by Christ. He is the apostle sent by Christ. The apostle means the sent one. He's sent under the uh, authority of Jesus. And he is sent with the teaching of Jesus. Verse 37, he says, if, any, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you, you are a command of the Lord. Right? A command of the Lord. And even those people who call themselves prophets and spiritual, they're obligated to listen to Paul's command. The bodybuilding gifts must be used correctly and according to Paul's instruction because it is the word of Christ. And if not, verse 38 contains a very strong consequence. He said, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Failure to listen to these instructions will result in judgment of some kind. We don't know if he's speaking of discipline by Paul or divine judgment. Those people in whom the Spirit is working won't have to act in ways that disrupt the church. Why is that? It's because people who have the Holy Spirit and who are exercising the spiritual gifts, they are the ones who are concerned with the health of the body. They're the ones who love the church and love her members. They're the same ones who happily follow Paul's instructions, receiving it as it is, the authority of Christ. And so verse 39 says, uh, tells that prophecy is, prophecy is superior, but that tongues, when it is interpreted, should not be prohibited. And Paul wraps up his answer to the Corinthians, this question that he's been unfolding <clears throat> about speaking in tongues in order in worship, uh, a very significant comment that we've already quoted uh, in even previous sermons, verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's his conclusion. All things should be done decently and in order. And that's the key principle according to which the public worship should be conducted. 
right? We talked about all things uh, being done to edify the church, and, and now all things are to be decently and ordered in the church. The content, of course, is important. Important also is doing things in the proper way. So status, self-centeredness, immodesty, disruptive actions, confusion, chaos, and all the rest, these have no place in the worship of God's people because they don't result in building up of the body of Christ. They're not orderly. Paul says everything should be done in a manner which is fitting with God's own purposes for public worship. And that is the proclamation of Christ's word. It's the proper administration of the sacraments. Because those are the things that he has ordained by which he feeds his people. And by which he convicts the world. And the goal is that everything that God's people do serves that common good and honors and glorifies God. Scripture is not silent regarding these things. Things to be done in Christian corporate worship. We can look at our passage or look at other passages uh, like Acts 2, 42 to get an idea of what we're doing. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Right? When they got together, that's what they did. How these things are done particularly uh, isn't specified. And so, so we distinguish things, technical terms like the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. Things that we're supposed to do, but we have freedom in how we do them. But for us here at Providence, it is one of the jobs of your session to assure that everything done in worship service is intelligible to everyone and that it serves the common good, that it's done in decency and in love and in good order, and preeminently that it exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may we continue to rejoice that our Lord did not leave us in confusion. He did not leave us in chaos. Let us praise him that he's given us a more sure word for life and godliness. What a marvelous thing it is to have the word of God. What a wonderful thing. And what a marvelous thing it is to have the spirit of God. Which indeed you do as you belong to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we ask that you would... Again, give us hearts that believe. In fact, Lord, increase our weak faith. Pray that you would have your way with us, that you would help us to rejoice and delight in the lives you have given us. Help us to hope and even to thrive as your people, as those united to Christ our Savior. For it's in his, for his glory that we pray. Amen.